Let's take a few a moment to pray, and then we'll jump in and uh, kind of do a little bit of an overview of Bible study methods, and then start to kind of talk about some of the first things we do. So, Father, we thank you for the day that we've had, God, that you have been with us all the way through it. Uh, Father, that you brought us here tonight, that we might uh, devote some time uh, to talking about how uh, to study and to read and to read and study uh, your words so that we can be confident that we are uh, discerning from it your truths God, and what you intended to speak and to make known to us. I pray that you bless our time tonight as we share back and forth, as we learn together, Lord, that you give us deeper insight into your scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last week we talked briefly about kind of why do Bible study methods. We pointed to some scripture, uh, talking about spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, uh, spiritual transformation or change, spiritual maturity. Uh, that ultimately it's scripture and this reading and study of scripture that leads us to worship. So we're good if Dax crawls under chairs and over and around and okay. So we're all good. Uh, there's a TV monitor in there that if you find the remote in a drawer and turn it on, you can get some volume too. Um, so it's a little less formal. We're okay if your kids and grandkids are, you know, jumping on our heads and wrapping us in toilet paper or whatever. So, you know, some of us, you know, <laughs> I spent a couple of years in a church overseas that, you know, the kids were just running sprint races up and down the side aisles while we're doing worship service. So a little, little different. Um, so we talked last week about why Bible study methods. Um, we talked a little bit about how to read a little more intentionally, um, just to break us out of uh, any ruts we might be in when we sit down and open our Bibles to read them. Uh, just trying to inject 10 ways or just thoughts of how to approach reading that might, you know, help us to read a little more intentionally and for us to see more uh, in the text. Tonight, we want to discuss briefly kind of an overview of Bible study methods, and then to begin to start talking about obser making observations. So uh, you've got the outline there. We'll just, we'll walk through this together. I've got some extra information to fill in. Or you can take notes, write down your questions, uh, you know, and then you'll have a, a good resource for later at the house. So an overview of Bible study methods, when we start talking about how to, this is basically how to inductively read and study your Bible, um, which means that we want to get the point of the text from the text as we read and as we study. And if we were to break it down into three overarching uh, categories um, of thought and kind of a movement of process from first to second to third. Uh, you have those there in front of you. It'd be observation, then interpretation, and then application. Now, those are three really broad terms that encompass each one of them, quite a bit of ground. Um, but we're trying to ask the question initially, just what does it say? All right, well, not what I think it says, 
not what I think it means, not what I think the significance of it is, not who needs to hear it, what the theological truth is. Like you just start with trying to peel all that we jump to so quickly away and just settle in and say, what, what is the text saying? And you might add there, and how does it say it, right? What does it say and how does it say it? And that, that settles us down to, um, to just observe the text. Once we've done quite a bit of that and some different things that we'll talk about and looking for a whole bunch of different things, we'll take a week or two or three to kind of slowly work through those so that you'll have good sets of lists of things that you can kind of use as a reference as far as what to look for as you're just making observations in a text. Uh, then we'll go to interpretation. What does it mean? You know, what does it mean by what it's said? What's the eternal, what's the truth in this text? What is the truth that God's trying to convey to his people in that historical moment, uh, in that culture, in that specific set of circumstances? You know, what is it, what's the truth there? Um, and so God's communicating specific things. And as he's communicating those, he's always speaking about himself, his promises, the fulfillment of those promises, Messiah, what comes from those promises. There are certain things that are true. Um, this is probably the least uh, paid attention to step in the process. Uh, and I'll kind of front end this for you right now. Like what is real easy to do is to look back and see what it says and what's in the story and then jump very quickly to what do we do, right? Which is the third one application. What do we do with this? And one of the things we really, really, really want to avoid is moralizing scripture, All right? These are not Hans Christian Anderson stories. These are not... Um, you know, fairy tales, right? Uh, we're not reading something that's not true in order to express a truth. Uh, and so what this looks like, just to give uh, some instances of what that kind of thing looks like, uh, one of the best ones to work with probably is David and Goliath. We all know it. You know, and David, for the sake of the Lord, all right, and zealousness for him and love for him. David, ultimately, we say he was very faithful. He trusted God and he went down to the brook and gathered stones on his way, you know, to fight Goliath. And so what do we often teach from that? Man, David was faithful. You go be faithful, right? I mean, so it'll preach and it'll teach, but that doesn't pull the theological truths that are in that narrative out and say, here's what's true. Why was David faithful? Why did he trust the Lord? What is there in the context there or in the history of the nation? What's he depending on? What happened in his own life that he knew that God was his protector and his refuge? You know, all these interpretive questions. Uh, you know, what's the history here between Israel and the Philistines, the Philistines and you know what what really is going on here the nation is under threat the promise of God itself is under threat right uh, and so trying to get to the theological core of that story 
rather than just saying, David was faithful, go be faithful. Man, when there's these big giants in your life, we've all heard this one preached this way, right? You know, you just have faith in God and you go out there, you'll slay the giants. You know, that, that's, not, that's not the point of that story. That's, that's moralizing. And then when somebody goes out into life based on moralizing scripture and it doesn't work, now you've upset the apple cart of their faith. Right, And so what we don't want to do is skip this real necessary middle ground of what does it mean? What's the, the, the always truth that's in that story or in Scripture? What's the theological truth here uh, that's being communicated? Because then that, that truth is always true. Right? Eternal truth isn't bound to a particular time and place and culture and set of circumstances. It's always true. And so if we understand what God's communicating in that specific time, place, set of circumstances, in that culture and in those events, and what the eternal truth is that he's making known and communicating, then that we can take and say, here's how that works today. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so like what we're looking for is the biblical principle, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could call it that. I'd say even a doctrinal truth. Um, you're looking for doctrine is what you're looking for. Um, you know, we, we can call that biblical principle. Um, you know, what's true about who God is, about his promises, about his people, about our relationship with him, uh, what sanctification looks like, what salvation is. All of those things, keeping in mind some dynamics that are different between God and Israel and now you know, the church. I mean, those are kind of Old Testament, Old Testament, New Testament relates type questions, but they figure into interpretation and doing that well. So, yeah, biblical principle or doctrinal truths is what we're looking for. So that's interpretation. What does it mean? And then application then is how does it work? And so how does it apply? And so once we have ascertained what's being said and from that, what kind of the big ideas and the themes and then the truths are uh, that are at stake, and then we can look at that and say today, here's how this works. So now we can make application to our lives. And so those are, that's kind of the, the movement of, uh, an inductive method of study, say K. Arthur, you know, how to study your Bible. Um, Precept Ministries, you know, uses a lot of this sim- very similar material if you've ever been in one of those studies. Um, you know, Bible study methods is just what it's often called in a lot of places. What does it say? What does it mean? And then now, how does that work? How does that go to work and affect change in my life? So, does that make sense? Any questions there? Comments, critiques, confrontations. Okay, just making sure. All right. Uh, so then let's talk briefly then about observing the text. We want to start with observation. So what does that look like? And I'm, we, in a few minutes, we'll look at some text together. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to be real transparent and throw some things out there and be vulnerable and be okay being wrong you know, so that we can kind of learn to differentiate the difference between observation, interpretation, and application. Because every time when we start this, 
we're trying to make observations, but we'll do interpretation and application. And so uh, we'll get to that in a moment. I'll let you know early so some of us can work up to being okay with that, right? Um, uh, so what is observation? Uh, let's start with just some common mistakes in observing. Um, the first one is familiarity. Uh, you know, assuming you already know what the text says. That when someone says John 3.16, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We all know that. And I had that memorized when I was three years old. I've known that in my whole life. Right? But so often we just have John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And so if you've been... Uh, kind of tracking with the last week or two in the sermon series where we're tagging back and doing a couple of misunderstood passages. You know, that John 3.16 is, is, would not be so much of a promise passage as it is an explanation passage. How do you know? Because you have the first word in there is four, which tells you you're in the middle of a conversation. You've got to go back up a little bit and find where that begins and where your context is, and see what it is that's being explained in verse 16, right? Um, And so being familiar, very familiar with the text, sometimes we just skim through that. Um, And so what observation and observational methods do is they help us slow down and not take for granted that we already know that text. You know, it's the old saying, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. I don't think any of us have contempt for Scripture, but I would say I would maybe change that to familiarity does at times for us breed complacency, right? And that we're, we're, we get complacent reading familiar text, right? When we could sit in them and find uh, something there that we haven't seen before. So familiarity oftentimes will be a, a, a hang-up or a stumbling block to good observation. The second thing often for us is impatience. Uh, would you agree that we are now very much a culture of immediate gratification, right? And not very many of us are immune to that because it's just changed so much, um, I'm in, I'm in an interesting spot, I think, myself, generationally. You know, as I was growing up out here between Decatur and Boyd, I had to, some of us remember having to do this, I had to hold the receiver on these phones down, right, to pick it up, and then I had to gently let it go. Do you all remember why? Because it was a party line. There were four houses on the same number. And I don't know how they worked it out. If they were, well, same line, we had different numbers, but we're all using the same vocal line. And so we had a slightly different ring from each other. And so if I let it loose, there'd be a little subtle click on the line. If somebody was talking, they might hear it and they'd say, uh, we're on the phone. You know, oh, I'm sorry. And you'd hang it up. You know, there was one particular person on our line that every time that the click happened and I was listening, get off the phone! <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You know, we were on a, a party line and, and if mom was gone, we didn't, and not at work, and we needed to get a hold of her, well, we didn't know where she was until she showed up at the house. Um, there was no way to get a hold of her. We didn't have answering machines. You'd call and it would ring and ring and ring. No one's home. Call back later. 
Right now, you know, answering machines, email, text. Now, if somebody doesn't like respond to your text in the first five minutes, you're like, what is wrong with that person? You know, they should be getting, they're not busy. They need to get back to me right now. I got them on instant messenger. Right? Hmm. Uh, don't they know that I need to make this decision right now? I need them to talk to me. You know, we just get all kinds of bent out of shape if they're not, we don't get an answer back right now. Right. Um, and so sometimes that that now just sitting down and the act of slowly reading scripture and then taking the time to study and to think and to reflect and to doodle and write and make lists. You know, if we're not careful, that will go away because we want the results right now. Uh, and so we're so busy, oftentimes we really have to make ourselves slow down, uh, not be impatient to, uh, to do this. And so um, we want to take time and understand, like we said last week, it's not a, it's not a, a sprint, it's a marathon, um, that even as we go through all of this, it's going to change how you sit down and read and how you study, and you're going to work at it. But diligence will prove out, and it just gets easier and easier and easier as you go along. And so um, don't expect it all to be just right there in the next few weeks even. Uh, give it some time and let it, let it grow in you. Uh, the last thing I'd want to speak to is I'll call it lensing. Um, you know, when you use a lens, you are using a lens to see something, but you're changing the shape of the light that comes through that, right? You're magnifying something or you're making it farther away. You're bringing it closer to you. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations is if you've ever seen National Treasure, Nicholas Cage, is that his name, right? He's this historian. He's chasing the Templar treasure all over the eastern seaboard before the bad guys get to it. And one of the things that he has to find is Benjamin Franklin's glasses, right? And he finds them up on top of the what is it, the, the Liberty, where, where they signed the Constitution uh, in that historic building on the roof behind a brick. And you pull them out and it's got these handles and there's three or four sets of lenses. It's like going to the doctor to get your sight done. They're flipping different ones down and this way and that way. And, you know, and if he gets the right set of them the right way on the right object, then he sees the secret map and the code. Right, so he's changing how he sees what he's looking at. And there's certain things in our life that kind of affect how we see Scripture immediately when we're reading it. And probably the, the most immediate one's just personal experience, things that we've gone through, circumstances we've endured, uh, moments of life, relationships that we have, people that we're concerned about, our hopes and dreams, like these are things that can really shape how we read and receive the text. And oftentimes immediately are inserting themselves in to our understanding of the text. And so when we're coming to do observation, we're trying to take those things off and lay those aside and just see scripture for scripture. And so personal experiences is one. Uh, contemporary culture is another. The issues of our day will often affect how we're reading Scripture. Uh, how we use language now um, will often affect how we understand the words that are on the page as we read them. 
Now, we have to remember a lot of times the terms that were being used were used in a very specific manner at that time. Uh, And so even like if you're reading a King James version of the Bible, for example, that was written 1611, uh, there are words and terms there. There's a reason we have more modern translations, because there are terms and words that we no longer use or really understand very well. And, and a lot of them are ones we, we use, but we use them differently than the way they were using them. And so language and how we use language, cultural issues and things inject themselves. And then the other one we have to watch out for is, is our theology. Um, what we think is true already from Scripture. Um, you don't want to come to a text and shape that text by the theology you have. Right, and so there's certain types of questions and texts that deal with those questions that are more more, more prone to do this with. Uh, we are to build our theology from the text and from a good interpretation and application of that text. And so we want to start at the foundation and do good work in that text of observation and then interpreting it Now we have a theological truth, and we want our theology to be changed by what Scripture teaches. But it's real easy when we're challenged in our theology to have our theology instead shape and change the text, because that's more comfortable. It doesn't require us to reshape our own paradigms, right? And so... That's one that happens a lot uh, as well. So these are just things we need to watch out for. Now, I didn't bring this little book out, but I wanted to start with this illustration uh, because it's really good. It's referenced in several different Bible study methods materials. It's a wonderful little story. It's a few, three or four pages long. Uh, but it's really, really good and drives the point home really well about what we're about to talk about. Making good observations. What does this look like? The story is called The Student, the Fish, and Agassiz by the Student. It was more than 15 years ago that I entered the laboratory of Professor Agassiz and told him that I had enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my object and coming, my antecedents generally, the mode in which I afterwards proposed to use the knowledge I might acquire, and finally, whether I wished to study any special branch. To the latter, I replied that I wished to be well-grounded in all departments of zoology, uh, but I purposed to devote myself specially to insects. Well, when do you wish to begin, he asked. Now, I replied, Well, this seemed to please him, and with an energetic, very well, he reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens and yellow alcohol. Take this fish, said he, and look at it. We call it a hamulon. By and by, I will ask what you have. With that, he left me, but in a moment returned with explicit instructions as to the care of the object entrusted to me. No man is fit to be a naturalist, said he, who does not know how to take care of specimens. I was to keep the fish before me in a tin tray and occasionally moisten the surface with alcohol from the jar, always taking care to replace the stopper tightly. 
Those were not the days of ground glass stoppers and elegantly shaped exhibition jars. All the old students will recall the huge necklace glass bottles with their leaky wax besmeared corks half eaten by insects and begrimed with cellar dust. Entomology, the study of insects, was a cleaner science than ichthyology, the study of fish, but the example of the professor who had unhesitatingly plunged to the bottom of the jar to produce the fish was infectious, and though this alcohol had a very ancient and fish-like smell, I really dared not to show any aversion within these sacred precincts and treated the alcohol as though it were pure water. Still, I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment. For gazing at a fish did not commend itself to an ardent entomologist. My friends at home, too, were annoyed when they discovered that no amount of eau de cologne would draw, drown the perfume which haunted me like a shadow. In ten minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish and started in search of the professor who had, however, left the museum. And when I returned, after lingering over some of the odd animals stored in the upper apartment, uh, my specimen was dry all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as if to resuscitate it from a fainting fit and looked with anxiety for a return of the normal sloppy appearance. This little excitement over, nothing was to be done but return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at a three-quarters view, just as ghastly, I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary, so with infinite relief, the fish was carefully placed in the jar, and for an hour, I was free. On my return, I learned that Professor Agassiz had been at the museum, but had gone and would not return for several hours. My fellow students were too busy to be disturbed by continued conversation. Slowly... I drew forth that hideous fish, and with a feeling of desperation, again looked at it. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were interdicted. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish, it seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that it was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, as surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature, and then the professor returned. That is right, he said. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I'm glad to notice, too, that you kept, keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. With these encouraging words, he added, well, what's it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose names were still unknown to me, the fringed gill, uh, gill arches, and movable operculum, the pores of the head, fleshy lips and lidless eyes, the lateral line, the spinous fin and forked tail, the compressed and arched body. When I had finished, he waited as if expecting more, and then with an air of dis disappointment, uh, you have not looked very carefully. Why, he continued more earnestly, you haven't seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish itself. Look again, look again. And he left me to my misery. I was piqued. I was mortified, still more of the wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another until I saw how just the professor's, how just the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly when... Uh, towards its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied, I'm certain I do not, but I, I see how little I saw before. 
That is next best, he said earnestly, but I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you'll be ready with a better answer in the morning. I'll examine you before you look at the fish. This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of my fish all the night, studying without the object before me what uh, what this unknown but most visible feature might be, but also without reviewing my new discoveries, I must give an exact account of them the next day. I had a bad memory. So I walked home by Charles River in a distracted state with my two perplexities. The cordial greeting from the professor the next morning was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be quite as anxious as I that I should see for myself what he saw. Do you perhaps mean, I asked, that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs? His thoroughly pleased, of course, of course, repaid the wakeful hours of the previous night. After he had discoursed most happily and enthusiastically, as he always did, upon the importance of the point, I ventured to ask what I should do next. You want to guess what the answer was? Oh, look at your fish, he said, and left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned and heard my new catalog. That is good. That is good. But that is not all. Go on. Go on. And so for three long days. He placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look, 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 was his repeated injunction. This was the best entomological lesson I ever had. He's studying fish, but the best lesson for the study of insects, he says, that he's ever had. A lesson whose influence has extended to the details of every subsequent study. A legacy the professor has left to me, as he has left it to many others, of inestimable value, which we could not buy, with which we cannot part. A year afterwards, some of us were amusing ourselves with chalking outlandish beasts upon a museum blackboard with drew prancing starfishes, frogs in mortal combat, hydra-headed worms, stately crawfishes standing on their tails, bearing aloft umbrellas, and grotesque fishes with gaping mouths and staring eyes. The professor came in shortly after and was as amused as any at our experiments. He looked at the, at the fishes. Hamulons, every one of them, he said. True, and to this day, if I attempt to fish, I can draw nothing but hamulons. The fourth day, a second fish of the same group was placed beside the first, and I was bidden to point out the resemblances and the differences between the two. Another and another followed until the entire family lay before me, and a whole legion of jars covered the table and surrounding shelves. The odor had become a pleasant perfume, and even now the sight of an old six-inch worm-eaten cork brings fragrant memories. The whole group of hamulons was thus brought in review, and whether engaged upon the dissection of the internal organs, the preparation and examination of the bony framework, or the description of the various parts, Agassiz's training and the method of observing facts in their orderly arrangements was ever accompanied by the urgent exhortation not to be content with them. Facts are stupid things, he would say, until brought into connection with some general law. At the end of eight months, it was almost with reluctance that I left these friends and turned to insects, but what I had gained by this outside experience has been of greater value than years of later investigation in my favorite groups. That's a great illustration of observing Scripture well. Um, you want to look, and you want to look, and you want to look, and you're not using outside instruments, commentaries, Bible study tools, you're just looking at the text to notice the features and the wrinkles and the parts 
and how they hold together. And you're just looking and looking and looking and looking. Uh, when we jumped into this in seminary, and so most of us were as raw as anybody, had had no exposure to any of this. So, um, you know, it wasn't like we had a leg up on it. We went into our first day of Bible study methods. It was uh, BE 101 was the class. Uh, and very quickly, we had the assignment to go home and look at Acts 1, chapter 1, verse 8. And we had to come back with 30 valid observations. So Howard Hendricks uses this illustration in his book in a little more shortened form. Uh, and so I think he had caught the lesson and he was imparting it to us. So you got to about 15 or 16 or 18 and you thought, man, there's no way I'll get to 30. And then something would click and you'd find a few more and then a few more and you're like, Thank you, Lord. I got my 30. And we come back to class, and we all have it on our desk, and we're ready to hand it in. And he says, did everyone get your 30 observations? We said, yes, we did, and we're ready to hand. He says, keep them. Why don't you take those home, and uh, between now and next week, why don't you find 30 more? (sighs) There's no way. And sure enough, you go home, you pray, you sit, you think, you look, you sweat, you pray some more and something makes itself known and right and you go through a couple of nights of that and you know now you've got 60 and Howard Hendricks had compiled from that one single verse over several years of many years of teaching that course over 600 valid observations of just that one text and so there is a lot that you we can see in a text just looking at the text. Um, And so just giving yourself time to look. So when we're looking, what are we looking for? Let's walk through these real quickly. And then we'll talk a little bit about Jude and send you on your way to read Jude this week and look for some of these things. Uh, One, look very generally for just atmosphere and tone in the text. Atmosphere and tone. Uh, you know, a great example of this is Matthew 26, 69 to 75. Uh, that's where Peter, it says, was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. And what does he say? Mm-mm. You know, he denies it, but he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And when he'd gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And when you read that text, it's hard not to remember in the context, Peter in the upper room, Jesus saying, you, Peter, will deny me. And Peter, with all his bravado and bluff and bluster, saying, no way, I will stand with you. I'll give my life. But now Jesus is arrested. And Jesus, he's on trial for his life. We're waiting all night. The different places Peter wanders to, while he's waiting, and then these accusations, and he knows that, that it's a serious night. Like, to say, yes, I know him, could put my life in danger. 
And there's so much tension in the air in that text. And you just, you're just reading uh, for just the tone, right? Because that brings a lot of color to what's going on there. Um, and then for him to deny him the third time and then remember how often you know, we sin and then remember God's word and do we weep. And he just weeps bitterly over it. You know, just atmosphere and tone. Catch those things in the text uh, when they're there. There's always some tone to it. You know, Galatians, when Paul writes that, he's very, very immediately just corrective uh, to them. There is no other gospel. I can't believe you're so quickly abandoning the gospel that's been preached to you. I mean, that is a confrontational tone on that one. He writes Timothy uh, and is very pastoral and warm to him. Get off, get, get off the sidelines and back into the game. You know, here's what you are to do. Uh, he writes Romans, man, I, just, I wish I've longed to come to you to share the gospel with you. Um, there's 1 Corinthians, he's answering a letter from them. And there's, there's always a tone to things. And so catch that atmosphere and that tone. Uh, secondly, just look for structure in whatever way you can. Changes of thought, progression of thought. Um, you know, in Corinthians, one of the things you see is now concerning once Paul gets through the introduction of the letter and kind of the beginning few chapters, when you hit chapter six or seven through like 12 and on, he, there's several just now concerning. And that's a clue that you're switching to a new topic in 1 Corinthians. And so when you read the whole thing at a sitting, that's the kind of thing that you, you pick up on. Um, and so you're looking for anything that would give you structure. Uh, Matthew 23, if you look down through that text sometime later, verses 13, 15, 16, 23, 25, 27, 29 there. Uh, is that on your notes? I went too fast on that one, didn't I? Matthew 23, verse 13, uh, 15, 16, 23, 25, 27, and then 29. It's this area where Jesus is addressing seven, seven different topics with the scribes and Pharisees. And he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Right? And there's that, he repeats that, except for verse 16. It's woe to you, blind guides, I think. And he repeats that over and over and over and over and over, which gives you some structure to that text. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 14, uh, when you look at, that's all one sentence in the original language. We have to break that up into three or four or five. Uh, verse 1 starts, or verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father. And then he goes through to verse 6, that we are to be the, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And then he starts talking about, he'd reference Jesus right there at the end of that little section. And so now he talks about things that we are true of us from Christ. The first section was about the work of the Father, and then it's about the work of the Son, verse 7 down to 12. And it ends again, we are to be to the praise of His glory. And then he starts talking about the work of the Spirit who sealed us, verse 13 and 14. And then it ends again, to the praise of His glory. And so you, you're looking for those kinds of things that give some structure, change of thought, progression of thought, repeated phrases, 
those kinds of things. See if you can identify structure. So atmosphere, structure. Then look for uh, conjunctions. Uh, now that takes us back to some grammar, but that's like and, so that, because, for, therefore, um, those kinds of words. They're, they're connective words. You know, therefore, something we've been talking about, therefore, in conclusion, this. Right? For is usually given the reason or the basis for something. And so look for conjunctions like explanation or reasoning. Given the reason for things is usually for and because. Uh, you can look for purpose conjunctions in order that or so that. You can put right out next to those usually in your New Testament purpose. Uh, Old Testament too. Uh, look for results type things. Uh, so look for conjunctions for, because, in order that, so that, therefore, uh, those kinds of things. Look for other terms. They would be, there's other types of terms, but like then and when are like temporal markers. I'll tell you something about time. Um, you know, look for those kinds of words. Look for key terms, fourthly, conjunctions, key terms is the fourth one. Uh, when you go read Matthew 6, 25 to 33, you can just kind of note this next to that there. Uh, there's a term that shows up five times in those six or seven or eight verses, which is anxious or worried. Now, do not be anxious about what you're going to eat or the clothes you're going to put on. Right? And then he goes down to the end of that and verse 34 says for the fifth time, you know, so do not be anxious. It's the, it gives you a great, uh, when it's through there that many times, don't be worried or anxious, or why are you worried or anxious and anxious, anxious. And you got a great passage on anxiety right there. Yeah, that's Matthew uh, 6, 25 to 34, actually. And you'll find anxious or worried, depending on your translation, five times through there. It's a great text. Um, so um, another text we know well, you know, Romans 8, 29 and 30, you know, key terms. When it says for those that God foreknew, he predestined and those he predestined, he called and those he called, he justified and those he justified, he glorified. You don't want to know what each one of those terms means and what Paul is communicating with them. So look for words in a text that you're like that. We need to understand that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. So look for key terms. Fifthly, uh, look for commands. Uh, we know those well. We're, we're being told in the imperative, do this or don't do this. All right? Uh, look for commands. Uh, keep an eye out for sixthly conditionals. Those are kind of if-thens. Sometimes the then isn't like in the text. So like 1 John 1, 9, that most of us will know, if uh, you will confess your sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you will confess your sins, parenthetically, then God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And so look for those kind of if-then type things. It's what we call conditionals. Um, there's something to watch for in those. When you see a conditional like that, um, 
the first part of it, like if we will confess our sins, sometimes that's assumed to be true and sometimes assumed not to be true. And sometimes it's just hypothetically. And so just think through that when you see a conditional. Uh, sometimes for the sake of argument, if you will do this, but I know you're not going to. And you can kind of catch it in the flow of the context if, that's, if it's one of those. If you do this, but I know you won't. If you think this, but I know you don't, then. Or if this is this way, and it is, or it will be, then. Or let's just say, hypothetically speaking, if this is the state of affairs, then this is what happens. And so, you know, those are... I like when Moses was saying, if you do this, but you're not going to, when it happens, that you disobey. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like, yeah, if, if you will obey my commandments, Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, I will bless you, the fruit of you and your fields. And, but when you don't, <laughs> you know, this instead will happen to you. So look for those conditionals. Uh, look for then promises also. Promises. Uh, you know, back to that Matthew 6, 25 to 34 passage, you know, in verse 33, it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things. There's a promise there will be added unto you. Now, all these things isn't just whatever you want or feel like you need. In the context of that passage, these things, there's a very definitive answer as to what those are. And it's basically just the basics of life. It's not any of the extras. Um, food, water, shelter. That's what it comes down to. So look for those promises. Figures of speech are always good to look for. Um, metaphors, similes. We'll look at some more types of figures of speech later. Some metaphors are, um, I'm go to he, uh, the lion of Judah. Jesus is a lion. Jesus the lion. Uh, is it Somebody help me out that's better with grammar than I am. When you use is or like, that's the simile, right? Okay, so is this or is like this, that's the simile. So the metaphor is just where uh, it's the picture of. It's not saying is or like, but it's using that as a picture of something. So the metaphor. But there's a couple of those in Jude. So keep your eyes out for those and you'll see them. We'll talk about them. Uh, Last couple, illustrations. Look for illustrations. Um, So like again, back in Matthew 6 in the anxiety passage, consider the birds, he says, of the air. And he uses them as an illustration. Or consider the lilies of the field and he uses those as an illustration. Lastly, man, look at grammar. And so the more you go back and review grammar, the better you'll grab what's going on, especially in the epistles. Paul is chunking so much truth so tightly together and he's using prepositions you know, so get in there and look at nouns or verbs and nouns and pronouns and adjectives and adverbs, uh, prepositions, conjunctions. Like there's great just little review pages on the Internet that you can, you know, see what those are in just a few minutes and just refamiliarize yourself. Because so often Paul uses little prepositional phrases and he'll stack three or four of them on by this and in this way and according to these things. I'll give you a little chart that I have that kind of helps identify all those prepositions. But, you know, there's a lot of just little tack on phrases. And so you want to know the main verb and the predicate of that sentence, 
when Paul's talking? And then what's all the filler that he's putting around that? And sometimes he starts with filler and then gets to the point and then adds more. And so you want to be able to kind of uncoil all of that, when, especially when you're reading Paul. So look at grammar, uh, and that'll help you quite a bit too. So those are things to look at. So this week, the challenge is we go back and read Jude once a day at least at a chunk and start looking for some of these things as you're looking at it. So um, before we go real quickly, um, let's look at Acts 1-8 together. Because I have my, I got his list of 600. No, I wish I had his list of 600 valid observations. I'd have all of them. Let's look at that and just think through observations real quick. So that when we go home, we're looking through uh, Jude this week. We're not going farther afield than we ought to. So Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So observations. I'll give you one to kick off and I want you to start throwing some up so that I can say amen or no. All right. So this is where we get transparent and work together a little bit. All right. But so you have a connective or a conjunction right there at the beginning of the verse. But which usually indicates a contrast. So that throws you back up to context. You're not starting a sentence. You're in the middle of a sentence, right? And so there's a couple of observations there. But is a conjunction. Uh, but is a conjunction that usually uh, communicates contrast between things. Uh, but indicates that we are uh, at the begin. We're not at the beginning of a sentence. Uh, but we are in the middle of a sentence, so we need to go to context. Those are, those are valid just observations of the text. We're not talking about what it means yet or how it works, just what's there. So some more from this verse. Yeah. So there's another conjunction there, right? So you will receive power. And now you left a little bit of something out there when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. But that's a valid connection, right? There's another conjunction there that connects two things. Now that sometimes with and, it's putting two things together as like simultaneous. And sometimes it's putting things in a sequential order, right? And so that's one of the things you would look at here. But so receiving power and being my witnesses those two things are connected by that and. That's a good observation. So does that mean if you're not a witness, you haven't received it? <laughs> that would be an interpretive question we're not dealing with yet. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a good thing. See, because that's immediately where our mind goes, right? What does that mean? Right? So we're just leaving that off right now, and we're just looking at what it says. Right? Now, it's a good question to write off on the side over here. If you want to put a little interpretive questions worksheet over here, and write that question down. It's a good thing to note and put over here to answer later. But right now, like you want to, you can't help those coming up. All right. But right now you want to focus on the observations. So what else? That's a good question to ask. What else? Okay. So uh, you will receive power. Um, 
Yeah, you could look at that as promissory. Yep. Okay. And kind of put that label there. It's He's saying something will happen. What else? Look, look at the minutiae even. All right. All right, so there's something there with the wind. So that there's a temper, there's a temporality. That's a temporal marker. All right, it's telling you time. So you you could put time next to that when. There's a certain time that's in view, right? And that, that's something that as you go through the book of Acts, there is a certain time where the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so now that when is important. So that that tells you about time. What's that? What's that? Yeah. That's probably getting more into the interpretive area, talking about God's decree, God's purpose, the fulfilling of that. You know, right now we're just in that we can see that there is a time frame in view, right? And before, like the question might be from that interpretively later, when is that time? You know, how does God do that? Right, and you could ask those questions for interpretation on that, but just from the bare bones of what's here in the text, there there's a temporality, there's a temporal marker when this takes place. Yeah. What else? Y'all doing good. This is helpful. Yeah. 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 You know, what is the Holy Spirit? Uh, who is the Holy Spirit? We can see the Holy Spirit is the third person of Trinity. It's a valid observation, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon them. Um, so that's the action that will take place. You could put action next to that, that the Spirit coming upon them. You know, later on, we would ask, what does that look like? When does that occur? How does that happen? What's the evidence of that? Like, these are the kinds of questions you would ask interpretively you know, for that. But there, there will be an event when time, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Uh, the Spirit coming upon you as the, as far as the action goes, are whoever the you is, are they active or passive? Passive. I was going to say, that's a good observation, right? That the, those that they're, the you that's being acted on, it's not something they're producing or doing. They're passive in this. All right, the power will be received and the Spirit will come upon them. And so they're passive actors in this, like they're not acting. Right? So there's a result from it. And you will be my witnesses, right? So there's a result. And so there's kind of a double cause and effect relationship. We haven't talked about those yet. We will, right? You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Cause, effect, right? And when you've received that power to be my witnesses, you will be my witnesses uh, this it's probably not a second cause effect. It's a delineation or a description of where you'll be witnesses, right? And so where is that going to take place? You know, both in 
right? So not just in this place or that place, but here and here and here and here, right? So that, that'd be another cause effect, the receiving power, and you shall be my witnesses. There's a cause effect relationship between those right there. Where are they going to be witnesses? Jerusalem is one. Right. Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. So there's a, when you start looking at that on a map, there's like right here where we are. And then Judea and Samaria, just even when you read that, you kind of know those are linked together. Right. And then that throws you into, if you, you're immediately remembering, man, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along <laughs> real well. There's a history there. Right. And so that's an observation you can write down. Hey, Judea and Samaria, that's an, an interesting connection to be made. There's a history here that ought to be explored. And then even to the uttermost parts of the earth. With that, there's a movement from, it's another valid observation, from locally to globally. Right? And how far do we go? That's an observation you can make. What else? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so the results of this receiving power will be this. There's a, de there's a definiteness to that, right? What else? That's a good interpretive question. So and again, like you can't, almost can't help thinking of these things while you're doing it. And so, you know, for the moment, you just, man, that is a great question to think through. Really good one. So you write that one down, you know, and we'll, when we get to interpreting that's one you want to explore under the interpretive process. Good one. I think the sequence is important too because you start where you are. Yep. And then yeah, now, if you're talking about that just in terms of truth for life, now we're making application, right? And so we don't want to get there yet. But if you had read all of Acts and you knew that the first eight chapters are in Jerusalem and then there's a persecution of the church and the church goes where? Judea and Samaria, and then the church, Acts 12, 13, with Paul, start going on missionary journeys. Now it's going you know, in most parts of the earth. And so there's a little bit of a structural layout of the whole book just from this verse. And that, that's a good observation to make, right? And so if we start talking about how this uh, works, that you, you share Christ where you are, and then out around you, and then you go wherever God calls you. That, that may be a very good application to make. We're just not quite to that point yet. And so we want to start discerning these great interpretive questions and our desire to make application and just slow it down and look at the fish a little longer. All right, and what else? The observation, Dell, from your deal, so it does say, it says all Judea and Samaria. So that, that all, you know, it says all of those. And, and, and it doesn't say all Jerusalem, and it doesn't say all the ends of the earth. You know, and so that, that's a good observation that makes you jump immediately to your interpretive question, why is that that way? And so if you have an interpretive question, you're observing something, it's just a lot of times we jump to the question, and we want to back up and go, what was it that I was seeing right there? And that's a good observation to make. A couple more, a couple more. Yeah, so uh, that there'll be witnesses somehow 
to all the earth, to the end of the earth, so to the farthest reaches, you know. And one of the questions you might ask, you know, so not only why is all there, but why is he changing? Rather than saying to all the earth, why, why to the end or the uttermost parts? You know, there's a certain tonality to that. There's a reason he chose that language. There's, there's other ways he could have expressed that, but he chose that way to do that. And so what does that give you, right? Sure, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, and so that would be, you know, in the interpretive area. But again, that's a, a thing to note down over here. But it's a good, a good potential thing to explore on that. So that's good. Are you catching a feel for it a little bit, right? So it's just that process, like how quickly we, our mind is geared, God has made it. You want to take things and lump things together, draw conclusions like, boom. We go there real quickly. And so we start interpreting very quickly. We start applying very quickly. And so you just want to sit back, like write those interpretive questions down, possible applications. I write those down Um, a lot of times. What's great about working through this as we work through it is that I'll come as I keep observing and then as I get into culture and background and the history of what's going on and the usage of the words and exploring the interpretive questions and then when I finally get over here some of my initial application thoughts, I'm like, eh, yeah, I was, I was not in the right ballpark over there on that one. I'm scribbling those out. I don't want a record of those. You know, and so this this process just helps keep us from going places where the text isn't going, but I want to go with it. And you're already feeling that a little bit here this morning, this evening. So that gives you a little bit of a feel uh, for it. So just observe, observe. And we're going to come back next week and we'll talk about several things specifically to look for. And we'll look at examples in scripture and just keep going back and looking at Jude. So Jude, for next week, Jude 3 and 4, spend some time just observing. Have your other sheet where you're asking interpretive questions, but just start making observations, right? And just, you know, challenge yourself. I'm not going to say come back with 30. It's real tempting. Uh, But challenge yourself to kind of come to the end of those and then to keep looking and then to find more. And keep looking and then find more just out of verse 3 and 4 in Jude. So before we go, uh, if you read Jude this week, did you catch a purpose statement in it or a main idea? Anybody want to venture as to what that was in that book? There is very much a warning in the book. Yep. What is that? Verse 3. Right, I'm writing to you uh, to urge you to contend earnestly for the faith. Right, now that's a that's a definite possibility when someone gives you that kind of a statement. So I was going to write you. Remember what he says. I was going to write to you about our common salvation, the gospel, but. I felt that I needed to write to you to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, that gives you a certain tone. He even goes on to say four reason, explanation, basis. Certain individuals are creeping in unnoticed, and they're turning grace into license. There's something going on that's dangerous to the church, and it's dangerous to the gospel. 
There's an urgency and an earnestness and a danger. There's a gospel issue here at stake. And just just from slowing down and looking and reading and pick those apart. And so it's a great, verse 3 and 4 is a great couple of verses in this letter to look at this way. Look at atmosphere and tone and then start looking and just making observations in those couple of verses. And then continue to read the whole thing day by day a couple times if you can and just see if you can start to kind of chunk it up into kind of its parts. So you've got a little bit of a leg up because you got one and two as a part and three and four as a part. And then see, see how you lay that out the rest of the way through. What are the kind of the, just the parts? All right, sound good? Good work. It's good, good interaction tonight. So any final thoughts or questions before we go? No? All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for, again, this time of study, Lord, and just... Uh, uh, gleaning from the knowledge of others who have studied your word so well and have laid out for us uh, kind of the path, Lord, for reading, studying, and observing, investigating, interpreting, then applying scripture, uh, God, so that we don't misuse it, misunderstand it, uh, misapply it, uh, understand it wrongly, or the right things even from the wrong text, Lord, that you would give us as we continue to study, just a, a hunger and a thirst for your word as you feed us, as we sit down and read, as we start to observe, as your spirit, God, teaches us through that. And we realize, Father, more and more uh, that your word is living and it's active. And your spirit is teaching us even the deep things of God as we sit down and slowly uh, study and interpret uh, and then apply it, Lord, according to just good foundational methods uh, that keep us reined in and allows your truths uh, to run freely through our hearts and minds uh, and then to change our lives. God, encourage us and give us a hunger for continued study uh, this week as we continue to uh, walk this out in front of us. Lord, bless us as we go in all the different ways, Lord, that we have needs that are here tonight, uh, just things that we're asking you to provide, uh, to do in our hearts, God, to break us of sin, uh, to help us to walk in obedience, God, to take our full delight and joy in you, uh, God, that you might be honored in and through us, your servants, uh, God, that we might serve you just day by day and in all things glorify you, God, just work in us tonight as we go and tomorrow as we get up and continue to walk uh, through life with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.